You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. On today's program, I spoke with Eve Levinson from March for Our Lives. Listen to Eve carefully. Her words vividly light the way to how we can all achieve a future with a safer America with smarter gun laws. At the end of this chat, Eve Levinson left us with a reason for hope during these difficult times and about what we as individuals can do during the coronavirus pandemic. On that note, I'd like to share something with you that I'm involved with right now. If you're looking for instructions on how to make a personal face mask or want to get involved sewing masks or distributing them, text MASKS, that's M-A-S-K-S, to 50409. That's MASKS, M-A-S-K-S, to 50409 to download a pattern or to get involved. Like so many of our guests, we want to hear her story of diving into activism firsthand, but to also ask about some of the interesting details of Eve's life outside of politics. Eve also gave us an update on the state of gun reform in America today. As an organizer of the largest youth protest in decades, Eve also has a unique perspective on the long lines of panic buyers we saw lining up in tight queues to buy firearms while the coronavirus outbreak rages. Take a listen to my chat with Eve Levinson. I'm here with Eve Levinson, Policy and Government Affairs Manager for March for Our Lives, an organization fighting gun violence across the country. Eve, how are you? Doing okay. Um, Obviously, everything's a little bit hectic right now, but happy to be working for an organization that's still so committed to making the world a better place at a time like this. And you're in California now? Yes, I am. Um, I'm a college student, so normally I am in Washington, D.C., taking classes at uh, George Washington University and representing March for Our Lives on Capitol Hill. Um, But now I'm in California doing all my work remotely like so many others. Wonderful. And you're on lockdown, I guess. Yes, I am leaving my house only to take my lovely dog on walks. (laughs) That's not bad. Uh, So you do get to get out. Can you share with our listeners what made you first decide to be like an activist or get politically involved? Yeah. um, So from a very young age, I was always raised to see my religion, Judaism, as very intertwined with uh, making the world a better place. We have um, a value called to keep... um, Tikkun Olam, healing the world. And so that from a very young age, like elementary school age, was always something that was very meaningful to me. Um, So I first got involved in political work, but more so just in like community justice, as I saw it, working on issues of homelessness in California and working on uh, genocide and mass atrocities prevention work. And so that's really what I did um, from the ages of probably 13 to 18. Um, And then when the Parkland shooting happened, just like so many other people in my generation, um, I really got immersed in the gun violence prevention movement. I was very inspired seeing young people come to the forefront of a movement um, and watching the world really uh, take the concerns of young people seriously and not only sort of not only sort of use them as a reason to make change, but really center them. Um, and so I got involved doing that work in California. And then when I moved to D.C. for college, started doing that work there and really wanted to help bridge the gap between what I saw as the more adult policy space and the young person protesting space, because I felt that there was space for young people in both. And we'll rewind. How did the March for Our Lives actually come about? I know it stemmed from the shooting, but how did that work out? Yeah, the horrific school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas um, led to students in Parkland, Florida, 
um, speaking out. And then what you saw was you saw students across the country that saw this on the news or um, were friends with people my generation saw it on social media. And so then you saw young people basically in every community, city, rural community, um, in all 50 states across the country, standing up and saying that they wanted to end gun violence in their community. Um, and so the first way that we all sort of galvanized was by planning walkouts. Um, there was a national walkout day where we walked out of school to basically say, if our schools and our streets aren't safe, then we're not going um um, then we need to take a stand and actually walk out of school to make that be known. So that was the first activation I actually planned in the gun violence prevention movement was a walkout at my school in Los Angeles. And then obviously on March 24th, you saw the historic march. And while obviously the one in D.C. got a lot of attention, it had so many participants, you saw sister marches all across the country doing the same and after that, what you saw was those same groups of students that organized those marches, organized those original protests, coming together and really creating chapters and doing continued work in their community, whether that be fighting for local or state laws, whether that be educating people, um, supporting violence intervention programs in their communities. Um, and that's really what our chapter network, which is our volunteer base, uh, derived from today. And it's, it was one of the biggest it's- protests, I guess, in American history. Yes, I believe it was the largest youth or student-run protest since the Vietnam War era and the largest protest against gun violence prevention in American history. Right, and it's been just over two years since the actual March for Our Lives rally. How do you think gun safety legislation has changed since then? What specific initiatives would you point to as like a success over the past few years? I think the gun violence prevention movement has changed in a few ways. I think one, obviously, the importance and role that youth play in it is really crucial. I think also we've helped bring to the forefront a more intersectional view of gun violence. And I think that's something that a lot of people in the movement have been fighting for for a long time, um, but really trying to make sure that we're not just talking about gun violence in suburban white communities and communities like Parkland, but acknowledging that the reality is that the number one way that people are killed by guns is by suicide. And the number two way is really everyday gun violence that we see, particularly killing uh, people of color and black men in particular. Um, I think when you look at what is the legislation, there have been dozens of laws passed in the state and local level, particularly you've seen a rise in extremist protection orders. Um, sometimes those are called red flag laws. We pref- we prefer the term extremist protection order because we believe red flag laws is stigmatizing to individuals who have mental health diagnoses. And the reality is that those temporary orders to take the gun away from an individual moment of crisis is not based off of a mental health diagnosis. And we know that despite what the other side might like to claim, um, a mental health diagnosis is actually not the best indicator of a future act of gun violence being committed, but rather a past act of violence is. Um, So I think you've seen extremist protection orders. You've seen increases in funding for violence intervention programs across the country, expanded background checks, um, banning assault weapons, many other issue areas that those of us who identify as progressives uh, might care about. We haven't seen as much traction on the federal level. So the um, House was able to pass a renewal of the Violence Against Women Act, which included a provision to close the boyfriend loophole. Um, they passed uh, HRA, uh, the Universal Background Checks Act, which would close the online sales and gun show loophole. Uh, they also passed HR 1112, which would close the Charleston loophole. And so those three are bills that we feel very strongly about. But of course, they're still sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk like so many other pieces of great legislation. Find out more about Meet the Candidates 2020, my new book series of voter guides authored by Dworkin Report producer Grant Stern. It's the only place you can read my opinion and a factual portrait of each major Democratic candidate in one place. Buy the book now at the link inside this episode's notes at grantstern.com 
or your local Barnes & Noble. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. It's a tragedy that he kind of sits on his hands and doesn't do anything, but I've seen y'all go into his office peacefully and talk and sing and tell your stories and things like that, and it's been pretty amazing to watch. Separately, a curveball here, on a personal level, I heard that you're an acrobat or a trapeze artist. Uh, how'd, you get, <laughs> how'd you get into that stuff? So, fun fact, the job I had before being a 20-year-old federally registered lobbyist was working at a trapeze school. I like to think I have two of the most eclectic jobs for a young American. Um, but yeah, I would say, I think, to make it a little bit less of a curveball, I think everybody doing this work, it's really important to have something outside of political work that brings you joy. And for me, I found that to be trapeze. Uh, so I had a friend in middle school who had a birthday party there and then I just really loved it and then have been doing flying trapeze ever since, which is super fun. Yeah, there are trapeze schools in Los Angeles, D.C., New York and Chicago at the place. I do it with trapeze school in New York. If anybody else decides that after this quarantine, they want to try that out. I think it's really cool. I mean, you can get some <laughs> practice maybe in at home. I obviously have no ability to do any of that. I don't even think I should try it. It's one of those things where it's like, I'll just watch you guys do it. You, you go ahead. Yeah. Well, right now, unfortunately, those places are closed down because um, that closed down with all the gyms. But makes sense. We need to practice social distancing. <laughs> well, that's a good point. You know, obviously with the coronavirus, there's been a uptick in gun sales and background checks applications. And do you think it's a good idea to keep gun stores open while people could spread and contract a deadly disease while panic buying weapons? So I think that there are two important things that come to mind for me when we realize that we see this uptick in gun sales. I think that one is that we really need to hold accountable the gun industry, which is taking advantage of this moment of crisis when people are getting killed um, to profit off of it. You see the NRA and other um, uh, like people affiliated with the gun industry who are literally putting ads out there saying that you need a gun to keep yourself safe from the coronavirus. And I think that the reality is that we know that the gun industry always profits off of moments like this. And so I think we need to really be holding them accountable. Um, I think the other important thing is that to also acknowledge the fears that are leading individuals to want to go and get these guns. So something that's really important to us is that we are not against safe gun ownership. And if you're an individual who can pass a background check, who was willing to go through some sort of training, who is not a prohibited purchaser and who isn't trying to get a military grade assault weapon, we respect your right completely to be able to own a gun. And so I think that's a big reality that we don't want to end up in a situation where we feel like we're demonizing these individuals. The reality is that you see an increase among the Asian American community who currently is being targeted because of rhetoric coming from our president and others claiming that this virus is quote, the Chinese virus, rather than claiming accurately that it derived from a place in China. But really what we need to be focused on is how this is a global epidemic. And so I think that's really important. I would say, though, the reality is that I don't think it's violating anybody's Second Amendment rights to be uh, listing these gun shops as non-essential, um, particularly because we see that we have a bunch of other constitutional rights, the right to peacefully protest, the right to gather. And right now we can't do that because of um, coronavirus. So I think that that's the reality. But I think that 
I think the most important thing, though, is trying to figure out everything that we can do to be making sure that all these people who are becoming new gun, new gun owners can be responsible gun owners. The reality is that we know that if these guns aren't stored safely, we're going to see an uptick both in people who are bringing new guns into the home and people who already have guns in accidental shootings, um, which our friends over at Brady have a great campaign about called M Family Fire, how we need to be asking people, like, are you safely storing your gun? Because with so many kids home, we're going to see an uptick in that. We're also going to see an uptick in uh, death by suicide, because as we know, all of this social distancing, as much as we want to say it's not social isolation and we can connect with people through calls and video chats like all of us are starting to feel a little bit lonely i think being at home and going a little stir crazy Um, and we're also going to see an uptick in uh domestic violence and so i think that figuring out what can we be doing to be raising awareness and resources since they already exist about those the aforementioned ways that we're going to see an uptick and also doing what we can to be combating the narrative put out by the gun industry about why you need a gun in this situation are really what we need to be focusing on Right. People who are going to try and get in your house probably are going to have guns themselves. And so you're looking at a battle you probably don't want to have. I guess I kind of understand the panic buying behind it. But the assumption is like that the world would end and they have to defend their house or something. It's a little bit kooky. It's out of my depth, I guess, to understand that. But you've got a lot of experience now dealing with grief. Trump finally admitted that experts expect at least... A horrifying number of 100,000 Americans dying in the next few months from COVID-19. Can you share your thoughts on how it's going to be best for folks to deal with facing our own mortality so frontally and with so much grief? I don't necessarily think I have a good answer to that. I think like working on gun violence prevention, the reality is like you interact with so many people who have themselves come so close to death having been shot, who have lost their friends, their families, parents of people who have lost themselves in gun violence. Um, And I think that personally, the way that I deal with that is just trying to do everything I can to be preventing it from happening to somebody else. And so I think in the same way that I'm trying to help be raising awareness and doing what we can to make sure that we don't see an uptick in gun deaths during this time, the reality is that if you want to channel your energy into something good because you're afraid about all these people that are getting that will die because of coronavirus is that we need to be practicing what the CDC is telling us to do. So we need to be social distancing. We need to not be going outside unless it's to get exercise, to get um, food, or if you're an individual who works in an essential service, we're so thankful that you're doing that work. But really thinking about the proactive steps that you can be taking, even in a situation where your government isn't necessarily doing everything they can. And in that way, I think I see a lot of similarities between the gun violence prevention movement and what we as individuals can be doing there and what we can be doing in terms of coronavirus. This episode of The Dworkin Report is brought to you by Resistors Like You. We aim to keep this show independent for as long as we can. Visit dworkinreport.com to see how you can help out. One of the best ways is by hitting that contribute button in the top right and giving what you can. Thanks again for your support. Let's get back to the show. It's hard to swallow that we're living in an even more grim world than one where a teenager can buy weapons of mass destruction and kill other teenagers. It's crazy. But yet activists like us and resistors, advocates all run on, on hope. Uh, what is something positive that you can leave our listeners with today to inspire them to keep up the fight? As you mentioned, 
just over a week ago was the two-year anniversary of the March for Our Lives. Um, and we obviously had to pivot what we were doing. We were going to do in-person activations. Um, and we were able to quickly pivot to be doing a totally digital um, day of action and did an incredible digital hub where we were able to get over 500 youth activists from around the country to all get onto a webinar where they were able to both, um, there were three components. Sort of, they were able to connect with each other and have sort of a virtual online community with like-minded young people. They were able to learn to tangible skills about digital advocacy, which is going to be crucial throughout um, throughout this time period and beyond. And then they were also able to figure out like how they can make an impact elsewhere. Um, and we had Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Lucy McBath get on and talk to them. Um, and sort of hearing, I think, both the hope that those two elected officials, somebody who's new to the House, somebody who's been in the Senate for a while and also just got off of a presidential run, and hearing the way in which they as legislators feel that young people and activists have really created a momentum that allows for more change to happen in the halls of power. And then also seeing how excited and rejuvenated that made all these young people in this time really gave me hope um, to realize that we can keep on making a difference, whether that be both in terms of doing what we can as individuals to flatten the curve for coronavirus, but also knowing that we can come out of this still working on all the other issues that we know are still happening and saving lives from all the public health issues. I look forward to you being elected to Congress shortly <laughs> and you taking the lead role in this fight there. And where can people follow you and March for Our Lives on Twitter? So um, March for Our Lives' Twitter handle is at a March number four, our lives. Um, and my Twitter handle is Eve underscore Levinson. Levinson is L-E-V-E-N-S-O-N. And those will be in the episode notes as well. Eve Levinson, I hope that you stay safe. All the best to you and your family. And thank you for taking time on this coronavirus day, I guess. it's Every day is the same Groundhog Day repeating over and over again, you know. But uh, <laughs> thank you for making the best out of it and also sharing uh, your thoughts and spending 20 minutes with me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to thank Eve Levinson for taking the time. Thanks again to Grant Stern, the best producer in podcasting. You can follow him at Grant Stern on Twitter. You can follow our Masks Now effort to fight the coronavirus pandemic. That's at masksnow.org. You can visit our website at dworkinreport.com. You can subscribe to our podcast at patreon.com slash dworkinreport. Thanks again for listening. Keep resisting. Onward!